Um, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. We're just going kind of line upon line and precept upon precept through the Word of God. We're in the book of Exodus. And um, just a very fascinating, um, deep, although maybe not at first glance, deep section of Scripture uh, that we're, we find ourselves in. So let's pray and then... Um, we're going to tackle all of chapter 28 by God's grace tonight. So, Father, thank you. As we sang that song, we, it's alive to us right now because we're studying about the holy of holies and the holy place. And Jesus, thank you that you were the veil that was torn so that we could just come in to your presence. And it's so amazing that it's hard to actually even take in that we can just come into the presence of God so freely because you're not only the veil you're also the lamb that was slain in our place Lord for our sins and our guilt and you took that sin upon yourself and you removed it from us and there's no condemnation there's no shame there's no guilt there's no it's all removed and we are white as snow in your presence and we are righteous altogether because of what you've done for us and we praise you for that lord would you breathe on the word tonight make it come alive in jesus name amen amen chapter 28 so by way of introduction i just want to maybe uh, come at chapter 28 with a little bit of introduction like i normally do and i'll try to uh, mix it up a little bit um, if you've been tracking with us, you know that we started in chapter 25, an interesting section of the book of Exodus that is dealing with uh, the tabernacle. The tabernacle, of course, is that tent, elaborate tent, but tent nonetheless, that was um, designed by God, given to Moses on the mountain, and that's what we're looking at specifically and when it was constructed, it was set up right in the middle of the camp of the Jews, the, the children of Israel, as they moved through the desert. Eventually, they go into the promised land and replace that tabernacle with the temple. But we've been looking at the construction of the tabernacle and this and that. Um, as we get to chapter 28, we change gears just a little bit. We're still talking about the tabernacle in the large scope of things, but specifically in chapter 28, and in chapter 29, Moses is now getting instructions concerning the priesthood. Specifically in chapter 28, what we're going to look at tonight, um, dealing with the clothes, the garments that the priest uh, would wear. And then next week we'll look at the consecration uh, of the priesthood. And so just like we uh, discovered when we were looking at the construction of the tabernacle and the tent and the, the furnishings and everything that was involved with the tabernacle, just like we saw and discovered that all of that pointed us straight to Jesus, that it's a foreshadow of Jesus, a type of Jesus in an amazing way, in a deep way, so too. As we look at the priesthood, as we look at the garments that he wears, this isn't just like a laundry list of things, you know, or, or, or useless information about measurements and sizes and materials. All of this stuff, once again, points us straight to Jesus Christ. Amen? And so with that in mind, what I want to do, actually even before we read verses uh, 1 through 5 as, as, as Moses introduces this section, I want to just lay down three things quickly. And basically what I'm doing is giving you the application up front. And so I, I want to just kind of lay some groundwork. And then as we read through this, 
you're going to be able to connect the dots. I'm going to connect some of them, but you'll, you'll just see even more stuff because we don't have time to tackle all of it. But I just want to lay down some principles and some things um, on a broad stroke way that will kind of help us fill it in as we go. Does that make sense? So first thing, number one, jot this down in your notes. Number one is uh, we want to know what is a priest because he's going to be talking about the priesthood, the Levitical priest, the Aaronic priesthood. I don't know about you guys. When I hear the word priest, a couple things come to mind. Number one, Judas priest. Sorry, that's just what pops into my head. Me and Mitch, unfortunately. The second thing is a Catholic priest. I didn't grow up in the Catholic church, but I mean, you know, you're in an airport or somewhere and you see somebody with a black suit and a, a backwards collar thing in the front. You're like, oh, it's a Catholic priest. And it's, I don't know, anybody grew up Catholic? Is that the first thing that pops into your mind? Or like a pagan priest, you know, and, but, but we, that kind of image kind of pops into our head. And I think it's important to not assume that we understand what he means when he's talking about a priesthood. And just very simply, just to kind of get rid of all those other pictures, this is what the word priest means in this context. This is what he's talking about. It's a very simple concept. The idea is that of a mediator, a go-between. Somebody that is, in a sense, grabbing the hand of this party and grabbing the hand of this party and kind of bringing them together. It's a mediator, a go-between. Does that make sense? And listen, actually, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, there's a little definition here. Just jot it down. Listen, Hebrews 5, 1 says this. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act, listen, to act on behalf of men in relation to... To God. I think that's a great little biblical definition of, a, of a, what a priest is. The priest was acting on behalf of man in relation to God. Now, what does that tell us right away? That to have, number one, God wants to have a relationship with his creation. Amen? Yes or no? You guys with me tonight? Okay, God wants to have a relationship with you. But there needs to be a mediator. Why? Because he's God. And we're not gods, we're his creation. He's holy, and apart from him, we're unholy. He's righteous. Apart from him, we're unrighteous. There needs to be a mediator if there's going to be relationship with God. And so as God is setting up his tabernacle in the middle of the, t of the camp and communicating, I want relationship with you, there's going to be this priesthood to act as a go-between in relation to God and man. So that, that's a broad stroke, but simple, but workable definition, okay? The next thing I want you to understand is, is, and again, these are deep things, but we're just going to touch them and move on. Um, when you talk about the priesthood, this is where it gets very applicable for us in the New Testament. Jesus, in the New Testament, is the ultimate fulfillment of that priesthood, and he's known as the great high priest. He is the great high priest. Amen? And here's your homework. We're not going to, like I said, we're just going to touch on it and move on. But your homework is to read Hebrews chapter 4 through uh, chapter 8. And what Hebrews is doing, the book of Hebrews is showing the superiority of Jesus over Judaism. And there's a lot of reasons for that. We're not studying the book of Hebrews right now. But one of the things that uh, the author of Hebrews is pointing out that Jesus' priesthood is far superior than even the Levitical or Aaronic priesthood that was established in the law. And so it talks about Jesus being, in chapter 4, the great high priest, the priest that sat down when the, when the work was done at the right hand of the Father and so many wonderful things. 
But again, I'm bringing that up because as we go through these garments and, and, and um, applications, keep in mind, ultimately, it's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is our great mediator. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, or is it 1 Timothy? Let me check my notes. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says there's one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Christ Jesus. Amen? Which, by the way, shows us that this priesthood, though it's in place in the law, ultimately couldn't do what, it was, what needed to be done. It, it was accepted by God. It was temporary until Jesus could come and do the final work. So again, just kind of let that roll around in your head a little bit. So firstly, a priest is a go-between, a mediator. Number two, Jesus is our great high priest. And thirdly, and I think this will come into play very practically, thirdly, um, this idea of the, a kingdom of priests. And here's what I mean by that. In the Old Testament, there was a high priest. We'll talk about that tonight, Aaron, his sons. And then all of his descendants were priests. All of those descendants had to be from the family of Aaron. Aaron was a part of the tribe of Levi. So every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest, if you're, if you're tracking with that. Though there was a high priest and there's priests that served under that high priest, God says in chapter 19, verse 6, his heart was is that the whole nation would be a kingdom of priests. Again, not dressing in the garments and going to the holy place, but the idea of a whole nation that in a more general way would represent God to the people and people to God. Does that make sense? That the, the, the pagan nations of the world, if they wanted to find out what God was like, they could go to Jerusalem, they could see the temple, they could hear the story, they could find out through God's people. Amen? Here's the kicker. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 for us in the new covenant, as born-again believers in Jesus, Peter says that we, the church of Jesus Christ, are a holy nation and a, quote, royal priesthood. Again, Jesus is the great high priest. We're not on that level. We're not like that, but in a more general way, kind of like the Old Testament picture, in a more general way, as believers in Jesus, we get to represent God to the people and people to God. But instead of going to Jerusalem to a temple, guess what? God has made us the temple of the Holy Spirit, putting his temple into or his spirit into us, and we go into the world. Got it? Instead of the world going to Jerusalem, the Christians go out into the world and show the world who Jesus Christ is. So there's a priestly ministry that you have. Just like Pastor Steve said on Sunday that you're a saint, guess what? You're also a priest and a priestess. Now don't get weird with that, please. Please don't get weird with that. Don't get all new agey on us and weird with that. It just is a very general thing of like, hey, you get to represent God to the people and take people, if you would, before God. And let me say this, and I mean this very, it's one of the things that's on my heart as far as application goes. This means that every single one of us is in the ministry. You are in the the ministry. You have a priestly role to play in the kingdom of God. Well, I thought you pastors were in the ministry and worship leaders were in the ministry. Actually, you know what my job description and Pastor Steve's job description is, according to Paul in Ephesians 4? It's to help bring all of us into maturity in Jesus, and then it says to equip the church for the work of the ministry. My job, a pastor's job, Steve's job, not Steve Jobs, Steve's job is to equip 
all the rest of us for the work of the ministry. His job is to equip you for ministry, not for him to do all the ministry. Does that make sense? We are to be out in the world doing the work. So keep that in mind. Let's actually read the Bible tonight. Chapter 28, verse 1. We'll go at a pretty good clip here. He's going to introduce this whole idea, verse 1. God says to Moses, Bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful, who I have filled with the spirit of skill. Oh, I, I don't want to let that verse get by. Th those who are skillful have been filled with the spirit of skill. In other words, God gifted them to do this. That they may make Aaron's garments, whom I have filled with the spirit of skill, that they may, okay, sorry, that was redundant. Um, garments, to consecrate him for my priesthood, or another version would say, to minister unto me. Verse 4, these are the garments that they shall make, a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checker work, a turban, and a sash, and they shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me or to minister unto me as priests. Verse 5, they shall receive gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. So, so in those first five verses, God is introducing what he's going to do, and he tells Moses, Moses, set aside Aaron, your bro, his kids, they're going to be the priests, and I'm going to have you guys make special garments for them that are holy for glory and for beauty that they will wear when they minister unto me. One little thing I want to point out here. Who got to be the priests, by the way? The sons of who? Aaron. See, the priesthood was not something you aspired to, that you went to school for necessarily. You had to be born into it. Does that make sense? Here's a little something for your, for your thinker, though. How could Jesus be the great high priest if he's from the tribe of Judah and not from the tribe of Levi? He's not a descendant of Aaron. The answer to that is in Hebrews chapter 7, where it talks about Jesus' ministry is not an Aaronic priesthood, but one that surpasses that, a Melchizedekian priesthood. And I'll just kind of tickle your ears with that one, and you can go back and read Genesis 14, Hebrews chapter 7, whole different order, whole different line uh, based upon promise and God's sovereignty and his choosing and great deep study that I just opened a can on. But let's keep moving. Um, but for us, by the way, we're not descendants of Aaron, but we've been born again and we have been born into that role of being a priest, First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Um, the other thing I kind of wanted just to point out is, look at verse 4. He says, these are the garments you're going to make, a breast piece, ephod, rope. That's what follows in the rest of the verses. That's what we're going to look at, these specific pieces and articles of clothing uh, that they're, they're, they're going to wear. Um, now, before we move on, look at verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4. Three times in this introduction to a priesthood, there's a phrase that comes up where he says that he has called them to minister unto him. At this point, I just want you to put a pin in that, hold on to it. But that's a key phrase. It's going to pop up again at the end of the chapter in verse 41, and it's going to resurface all throughout the, the law when it's talking about priests. And to me, this is such a key, key phrase 
and so practicable. I want to ch- I want to save that to the end. So let's keep moving. Now we're going to look at the ephod, and uh, starts in verse six. They shall make the ephod, an ephod basically a fancy vest that went down to about the thigh, okay? An ephod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. Again, note the, the materials being used. We pointed this out a couple chapters ago that every one of those is typical and speaks of Jesus. Blue, heaven, purple, royalty. Jesus is the king of kings. Scarlet, red, speaks of his blood. Fine twined linen, that white purity and righteousness. Well, these things will be skillfully worked. Verse 7, it shall have two shoulder pieces attached to two edges so that it may be joined together. And the skillfully woven band, or like a little belt thing, um, shall be made like it uh, and be of one piece with it of gold, blue, purple, and of scarlet yarns of fine twined linen. Verse 9, you shall take two onyx stones. Now check this out. And engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of the names of the sons uh, on one stone and the names of the remaining six on the other stone in order of their birth. Verse 11, as a jeweler engraves signets, so shall you engrave the two stones with the names of the, stones of Is- uh, names of the sons of Israel. And you shall enclose them in settings of gold filigree. Verse 12, and you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron, listen to this, shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. And you shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold twisted like uh, cords, and you shall attach the corded chains to the settings. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to go in detail about how this may have looked, but in essence, those materials we looked at, gold, purple, um, all those things, was woven into this very elaborate vest that was in two pieces, sleeveless, that connected at the shoulders. But I think what's of kind of the point that I want to like highlight is that when they connected at the shoulders in this gold setting, what was sitting in this gold setting? There was two, what, onyx stones. And in those onyx stones, skillfully, like a, like a jeweler would engrave, you know, like a, your name on a wedding band or something, he put the names in order of their birth of the children of Israel. Do you guys catch that? Why? Well, verse 12, this is the key to this section. Verse 12 says the why. And you shall set the two stones... Um, as stones of remembrance, and Aaron shall bear their names uh, of the two on his shoulders for remembrance. This is the point. When Aaron, the high priest, would go in the presence of God, on his shoulders would be the names of the children of Israel. He's bearing their names on his shoulders when he comes into the presence of the Father. When you think of the shoulder, it's, it's, it's really indicative of labor and work. You're shouldering the weight. You're, you're hoisting something on your shoulder. You're leaning into it. The idea is that a broad shoulders labor, right? And on his shoulders was the names, individual names of the children of Israel. What a beautiful picture, you guys. Here's what I mean. Jesus is what? Our great high priest. And guess what it says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, and his, your name 
is being born on his shoulders, as it were. He's bringing your name before the Father. He's doing work for you. He's doing work for me. As the enemy accuses us, as life comes against us, there's Jesus, our advocate, with our names, if you would, on his shoulders in the presence of the Father, bringing us, and the idea is regularly, continually. Actually, the idea is with non-stopness, which I'm not sure that's a word. Our names are before God. And guys, how great is that? You know, I try to pray for my kids. I try to pray for certain people. I hope you have people praying for you. But if you don't have somebody praying for you, know this. Jesus is praying for you. Amen? Now, take that to application for us, guys. In our lesser role as priests and priestesses, guys, we get to do the same thing. We get to bear the names of people on our shoulders, if you would, before God. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I, do, I don't want to sweep over it too quickly. Listen, this is one of our duties and blessed privileges of those who serve in the ministry. One of our things that we get to do is bear names before God. What names? Whatever name is in your life that you need to take before God. For me, I'll tell you what, I take the name, by name, my children before God every single day. I take my wife by her name before God. I take people that come into my mind and my heart. Sometimes I'll walk around and pray through the church and I'll just remember where people sit and I'll just pray for you guys to take those names before the Lord. And here's the thing. You might say, well, that, that might take some time. Yeah, the shoulders speak of work. Did you, how many of you guys know that actually praying sometimes is work? And, and I don't want to like, like let us off the hook a little easy on this. Sometimes we need to buckle down and sweat and pray and take those names in a laborious way, if you would, before the Lord. Do you, know, do you guys understand what I'm saying? So often we, we have people in our lives and they're going through stuff, but let me ask you, when's the last time when everybody else was in bed and you get on your face in the living room with tears coming down your face and you plead for the soul of that person before God? I don't do that enough. I don't think any of us do it enough. Oh, it's just so hard. I know. Prayer's hard. Sometimes prayers work. Sometimes prayers, that's why Paul would say, labor with me in prayer. You know, Jesus was says, can't you labor with me in prayer? Some, not all the time, but there are times when it's incumbent upon us to take those names and bear them before God. Because listen, sometimes if, if we don't, I mean, of course the Lord is always our intercession, you know, interceding. But guys, I am so glad that people prayed for me. When I graduated high school, I was a part of a great youth group. I didn't even go to that church, but it was this great youth group that I went to. And this older gentleman that I just saw kind of in the shadows, he was at the church. I talked to him a couple times. I noticed he supported our car washes and things that we would do. But when I graduated, he called me and he said, you know, Jason, when you were a freshman and you were squirrely and you were running around like an idiot and chasing girls and just being Jason, at 14 or whatever, God puts you on my heart, and I've been praying for you every day. I didn't even know that guy. And he took my name before the God of the universe. When people tell me they're praying for me, I don't go, oh, cool, thanks, whatever, it's just something you say. Think about that. You took my name to God 
You talked to God about me? That's such a privilege. That's such an honor. Amen. And this is not a guilt thing. This isn't like, why aren't you doing more of this? But maybe it should stir us up a little bit like, hey, we get to do this. We get to go before God with the names of our loved ones and our enemies even on our lips to the Lord. And sometimes it's a little laborious, but we got to shoulder that weight. That's part of our job. Amen? Well, moving on. Not a lot of amens on that one. Okay. Verse 15. Now we're going to deal with the breast piece or some called the breast plate. And this is something that will hang over the ephod. I want to just do a lot of reading here. It's very self-explanatory in a lot of ways. You shall make a breast piece of, uh, for judgment in skilled work in the style of the ephod. The same kind of materials of gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, fine twine linen. You shall make it. It shall be square and doubled over a span. In its length, uh, a span is about nine inches. Its length and it, a span and its breadth, a span. You shall set it in four rows of stones. A row of sardis, topaz, and carbuncle shall be the first row. In the second row, an emerald, sapphire, and a diamond. On the third row, a jacinth, an agate, and an amethyst. In the fourth row, beryl, an onyx, and jasper. And there's different variations of those stones and uh, what exactly they were. Well, and, and there's, it's not really worth arguing about, but there's just different thoughts on what exactly they were. Um, they shall be set in gold filigree, or these little gold settings, and there shall be 12 stones with their names, listen, according to the sons of Israel. And they shall be like signets or seals, each engraved with its name for the 12 tribes. And you shall make for the breast piece twisted chains like cords of pure gold. And you shall make for the breast piece two rings of gold and put the two rings on the two edges of the breast piece. Verse 24. And you shall put two cords of gold in the two rings at the edge of the breast piece. Verse 25. The two ends of the two cords you shall attach to the two settings in the filigree, so to attach it in front of the shoulder pieces of the ephod. And you shall make two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breast piece on its uh, inside edge next to the ephod. Um, and you shall make two rings of gold and attach them in front of the lower part of the two shoulder pieces of the ephod, ephod as it's... Uh, seam above the skillfully woven band of the ephod. Verse 28. And they shall bind the breast piece by its rings to the rings of the ephod for a lace of blue, uh, excuse me, with a lace of blue, so that it may lie on uh, the skillfully woven band of the ephod, so that the breast piece um, shall not come loose from the ephod. And I, I know I went through that very quickly, but the idea was is it would be this cloth thing made of the materials we talked about, Nine inches square. It would attach with all those little gold rings and fillets and chains and stuff to that uh, little belt that was on the ephod and to the shoulder straps. And so it was just kind of, uh, kind of harnessed in place. Does that make sense? And what it was, it was this breast piece. Notice it was called the breast piece of judgment. Does another version have a different word than judgment, by the way? Or does it say breast piece of judgment? Breastplate of judgment. Anyways, the idea is not like for judging the people, but the idea is more along the lines of making decisions, uh, the, the breastplate of decision-making or um, finding out God's will. And we'll see in a moment, we're going to talk about the uh, Urim and the Tumim, which is how they would discern God's will. The point I just want to make on this, it's very much related to the idea of the onyx stones on the shoulder. Except this time, where is it? It's covering the heart covering the heart. 
And on the, the heart of the high priest was this breast piece with 12 stones, four rows of three stones, and on each stone would be engraved the names of those tribes, of those individual tribes. And the idea, very picturesque, very wonderful, as the high priest comes once more before the presence of God, the names are not only on his shoulders, but the names are on his heart. And, and that speaks of the fact that, listen, he is not only doing work for you, but he loves you. He's thinking about you. You and I, we could say, are on the heart of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? He likes you. Every time I come across, you know, I, I lived so much of my Christian experience thinking that God was just obligated to like me, but he, he actually was always just a little disappointed in me because I didn't quite measure up, and I don't know where that came from. Uh, probably some deep father wound or something. I don't know. But, you know, I always had this, this sense of this cloud that hung over me that God's just not quite happy with me because I'm not doing good enough or whatever. And, and, and it was, for me, just so, such a red-letter day when I just realized that there's therefore now no condemnation in Christ. He, because of the blood of Jesus, I am fully accepted in the beloved. And he doesn't just love me out of a sense of, well, I, I love the world and you're part of the world, so I have to love you too. He likes me. He thinks about me. He's into me. Not because I'm awesome, but because he's awesome and I'm just his kid and he just, it's just the way it is. He loves me. And I still trip out on that. I've been a Christian, guys, for 35 years. And when I come across verses in the Psalms that say the Lord, you know, loves his people or, or verses that for God so loved the world, it just, I still, to this day, trip out on the fact that God thinks of me in that way and that I'm on his heart. And when I had this thought, and I'll get off it real quick, going back to this idea of laboring in prayer for people, you know, it may start like that, but here's what I've noticed. When I have a name that I take before God, and it's more of like, oh, I've got to pray for this person, but guess what? It goes from my shoulders to my heart. You know, the Bible says pray for your enemies. You know that if you pray for your enemies long enough, they're not going to be your enemies anymore because you're going to start to have a heart for them. They're, you're going to have a heart to pray for them. Prayer's not always just laborious. It's also, we, it's a, we love to bring their names before God because we love them. Amen? And the Lord loves you, and you are on his heart. I love that. Well, let's just keep moving through this fairly quickly. Um, it says in verse 29, the word so. Now listen, when you see a word like that, it's important because that's a reasoning word, and it's going to kind of draw a conclusion or an application to all the stuff that we just read. So here's the why for all of it. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart. We just talked about that. When he goes into the holy place to bring regular or continuous remembrance before the Lord. And in the breastplate of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Tumim, and they should be uh, on Aaron's heart. When he goes before the Lord, thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart. Uh, before the Lord regularly. Just want to mention verse 30, the, the Urim and the Tumim. Um, lots of theories on this one. Basically, it was two stones, the Urim or the Urim and the Tumim, the Urim and the Tumim, uh, means lights and perfection. That's what it means, lights and perfection. And those two stones really speak of God's 
complete and total enlightenment, full knowledge, perfect knowledge, perfect understanding of everything, of every situation, of every dilemma. He knows all of it. And when, you, you can look through the history of Israel, when they, the kings, for example, would, would need wisdom, do we go in the battle? They would seek the Lord, and in some way, the priests would use the Urim and the Tumim, and there's different theories on it, and I'm, I don't want to get into all of that, but somehow, supernaturally, God, maybe he reached into the pouch that they were kept in and pulled them out, and, and maybe if he pulled out this one, it's yes, and if this one, it's no, and there's, again, different theories on how that worked. But the point is, is that, the high priest was instrumental in giving direction and wisdom and enlightenment in what to do in life. Out of curiosity, how many of you guys wish you could go to a, a priest and say, I need to know what to do. Reach in your pocket and pull out a stone. I just want to know what to do. Or God, send me an email. Something concrete. I mean, I wish there were these stones sometimes in a lot of ways, but there's not. But I'll tell you what, we have something better. We have the light of God's word. We have the light of the Holy Spirit. We have him with us constantly. And when you just are soaking in his word and seeking his face, the Holy Spirit is much more reliable than, I always think of like that crazy eight ball thing, like, should I go out with her, Lord? <laughs> okay, should I go out? And, and you just get it to the answer you want, right? I'm so glad that God's not like that, man. I'm so glad that I can just come and you know, he doesn't just give us the quick answer sometimes, but he's so faithful when we seek him with all of our heart to give us direction and wisdom in what to do in life. Amen? All right. Let's keep cruising. You shall make a robe, this ephod of, um, a robe of the ephod of all blue. It shall have an opening at the head in the middle of it, woven with a binding around its opening like the opening in a garment so it, um, we not tear. It's like one piece. And it's him you shall make pomegranates of blue, purple, scarlet yarn around its hem, bells of gold between the hem, golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the road, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and listen to this, and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. Now this is fascinating. Underneath the ephod and underneath the breastplate was this blue robe that he would wear, and at the bottom of the hem of that blue robe would be these woven things to look like pomegranates, and then there'd be a little gold bell, and then a pomegranate and a bell, and a pomegranate and a bell. So many wonderful types and pictures in this robe. Blue, of course, speaks of heaven. But it's fascinating. He would walk into the holy place, and you would be able to hear him walking in there as the tinkling of the bells would be sounding. Does that make sense? Now, there's a lot of talk about how the high priest would then, they would tie a rope around his ankle so that he would, when he went behind the, the veil into the presence of God, if the bell stopped tinkling, they knew that he was impure in some way and he was dead and they wanted to yard that guy out because who's going to go behind the veil to get a dead guy? Because then you're going to be a dead guy. Now what's interesting about that, it's not in the Bible. There's nowhere in the Bible that says they ever tied a rope around any high priest's ankle, nor is there any record in history of that ever happening in Josephus or any of those things. It is found in some of the rabbinical traditional writings of the Talmud that they would do that, but there's actually no historical record of that happening. So whether that happened or whether or not makes a great story one way or the other. But here's what I think more important is what the pomegranate and the bells actually speak of. The pomegranate, anybody ever had pomegranates before? I have great memories as a kid just 
popping those things off in California and ripping them open, and like 42,000 stain-filled seeds that will not come out of your shirt. You know, Mom, how did you know I was eating pomegranate? Oh, I don't know. It looks like you got shot with a shotgun, you know, all over your shirt. I mean, but they're so good, and they're a little tart, and you're like, mm, but you just keep eating them, and you're scooping them out. Pomegranates speak of fruitfulness. It's a fruit with tons of fruit inside the fruit. I mean, it's just packed full of fruitfulness. And the bells, and there's, a lot, there's different views on what these things represent, but I, the best I've ever heard is that the pomegranates speak of fruitfulness, and the bells speak of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So what's the fruit of the Spirit? Love. And then you have the gifts of the Spirit. And did you notice a pomegranate, fruit, by the bell, gifts, fruit, gifts, fruit. And it's interesting because we're in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 deals with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 deals with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 13 deals with the fruit of the Spirit, love. And then 1 Corinthians 14 deals with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So bell, pomegranate, bell. It's just an interesting thing to consider. It's all found in Jesus. And again, we're just going to touch and go, but let's keep moving. Verse 36 fascinating. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be put on his forehead, and they may be accepted before the Lord. So again, he's going to have this turban on his head, like a head wrap, fine linen, on the front of it, on his forehead, bam, was a gold plate engraved with these words, holy to the Lord. And the idea there is that the high priest would know that always on the front of his mind was to be this thought, I'm holy to the Lord. That doesn't mean like, man, I'm so holy. The idea is I am set apart and consecrated solely for the use of God's purposes. That's what needs to be on the forefront of my mind. And I like that application because, listen, as we're in the ministry of lesser priests, if you would, we need to keep in mind that we're holy to the Lord. You know, you can be involved in ministry, you can do church stuff, and lose your holiness. And forget that, man, in my heart, in my actions, in my private life, I need to be set apart for the Lord if he wants to use me. We're holy to the Lord consecrated. We talked about holiness a week ago, so I won't go into it again. But also notice, and I'm just going to touch on this, it says at the end of verse 38 um, that the, the priest would bear the guilt from the holy sacrifices that the people of Israel would consecrate as holy. So they would bring an, a, 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 a lamb as a guilt offering, and it says the priest would bear that guilt as he comes in before the Lord. And again, I just want to touch on it. First Peter chapter 2, maybe verse 24, somewhere in there, talks about Jesus, our great high priest, bore, and the idea of bearing something is to take it off of you and put it onto me. He took off of me the guilt and the shame and the filthiness of my sin and the one true and holy one that ever lived, Jesus, and he put it upon himself, and then he went to the cross and died for it, though he was perfectly innocent and I was absolutely guilty. 
Amen? Our high priest also became the Lamb of God. It's just, it's just an amazing thing. Well, let's keep moving. Actually, we'll just rifle through this last part. Verse 39. You shall weave the coat in checker work of fine linen, and you shall make a turban of fine linen, not lemons, linen, and you shall make a sash embroidered with needlework. And now he's going to talk about some of the similar stuff for um, his kids. For Aaron's sons, you shall make coats, sashes, caps, for the glory and beauty. You shall put them on Aaron, your brother, and on his sons with him. You shall anoint them, ordain them, and consecrate them, that they may be serve me as priests or minister unto me as priests. Verse 42, you shall make them linen undergarments to cover their naked flesh, and they shall reach uh, uh, from the hips to the thighs, and they shall be on Aaron and on his sons, and they shall go into the tent of meeting when they come near to the altar to minister in the holy place, lest they bear their guilt and die. This shall be a statute forever uh, for them, for uh, his offspring after them. So again, the sons would serve as priests. They had clothing articles as well. I do want to just point out this, holy underwear. They would have holy underwear. And so we're going to start as a church. We have order forms out in the foyer. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. But the priests would have to wear in between their naked flesh and those other garments a fine, light, white linen thing that went down like here. And the idea of that, that white, pure white, light linen speaks of righteousness. And underneath all the fancy garbs and all the, all the other stuff, if you would, it all started with righteousness. And guys, we have been clothed upon with the garment of salvation. We who, our sins were scarlet, our sins were red, we were stained, and yet Jesus has washed us clean by the blood of the Lamb, and we now are white as snow. Amen? We are robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, positionally. Now, I want to, I know I'm a little bit over, but I think Steve started late, so we're just going to roll with it and blame him. But I do just want to close with this, and, and only because I, I really think this is what the Lord put on my heart, and I, and I really feel like it is such a key. I want to end where I started. In that application that we as believers are also a royal priesthood. We're in the ministry. And that phrase that came up four times in this chapter, to minister unto him, to minister unto him, to minister unto him, to minister unto him. Something that Pastor Steve and I and some of us, Austin guys, we've been talking about this a lot, that this is, I believe, something that the Lord is wanting to really instill into our church at Calvary Chapel North Shore, that ministry is unto him in two ways i want to just quickly touch on it again we could go deeper and deeper it's something that comes up over and over again so we'll talk about it soon enough the apex of a priestly ministry the show if you would that's a baseball term because when you go from the minors to the major league they say oh we made it to the show the show for a priest guess what was to minister in the holy place 
Oh, you may not be the great high priest and get to go behind the veil, but if you're a son of Aaron and you get called upon, there was a lot of priests, and so there was divisions, and there was a schedule, and you may one time in your life as a priest get to go into the temple or to the tabernacle and be the guy that gets to trim the wick and to refill the oil and swap out the showbread and get close to the veil and burn incense. And by the way, when you're burning incense, which speaks of prayer, that is the closest anybody ever got to the presence of God. And anytime we're in prayer, that's the closest we are ever to the presence of God. Someone rightly said, the greatest answer to prayer is more prayer. Like, it's all about prayer. But all that to say is the apex, the greatest privilege of any priest was to actually be in the holy place where you're kind of stripped down and you're in there and you're just in it. The presence of God doing those things as unto the Lord. No one sees what's going on in there but God. The crowd can't see you. The thousands of people outside the courtyard who brought their animals, the hustle and the bustle, it's all quieted down, and it's just you and God. And guys, if you, now we're all in the ministry but I'm definitely referring to anybody who is in any kind of church ministry. I don't care if it's children's ministry, worship ministry, sound ministry, deacon ministry, preaching ministry, any kind of ministry, and then ministry in general. We have to get this down. That the apex of our ministry is not out in the courtyard in the hustle and bustle to be seen by everybody, but it's in the quiet place, secluded, out of sight of other people, when we're just in the presence of God. And all other ministry will flow out of that. There's always going to be time to be seen and be out and doing busy stuff. And, and, and there's some people who love that. That's where they want to be. They want to be seen by the, pre, you know, the crowd. Look at me. I'm wearing my priestly garb. and Look how I kill this lamb. And I got it down. I'm kind of a, you know, and ooh, look at him. He's a priest. Look at and. And there's people that thrive on that, but they neglect the inner ministry, the unseen time. And listen, that's where it's at. Whether you want to talk about that picture or you want to talk about Mary and Martha where he says, quit being so busy, Martha. You're overly occupied with doing this when the greatest thing you can be doing is just sitting at my feet. Or if you want to talk a picture in Acts 13 where the apostles were just in a leadership meeting. They were just praying. They were seeking God. They weren't going over the yearly budget. They were fasting and praying and ministering to the Lord. And the Holy Spirit manifested through one of the guys there through a word of prophecy or word of knowledge and said, separate Paul and Barnabas for a work I've got for them. Paul was a nobody at that time. He was in Barnabas' shadow, and he becomes the greatest missionary of all time, and it all flowed out of, first and foremost, ministering to the Lord. Priest, priestess, are you ministering to the Lord? Well, I show up at church, and I do all this stuff. That's great. We need to do that. There's a place for that, but not to the neglect of the quiet and the unseen and the just being with Jesus time. I know it's hard in a daily life. I know when you work and you go to school and you have all this stuff, but we cannot be effective ministers unless our first ministry is in that quiet place of sitting before the Lord regularly, being filled and just being still. Amen? Secondly, and super practically, our ministry is unto the Lord 
when we're out in the scene, when we're doing whatever it is we're doing. Here's what I mean by that. It, you don't have to be preaching. You can be changing a poopy diaper in the nursery. You can be washing dishes at home. You can be changing the oil under a car. You can be leading worship. You can be teaching a Bible study and do it as unto the Lord. Does that make sense? See, there could be a temptation to think that ministry is unto the people. And that's understandable. Why? Because as ministers, what are we doing? We're serving people. We're helping people. But ultimately, we need to be doing our ministry not primarily for the people, but as unto the Lord. Does that make sense? For example, I'm a worship leader. When I used to lead worship in the early days, I would be so worried about, is this, am I connecting? Are people singing? And I'd look around the room, and how come they're not entering into worship? And why are they thinking about other things? As I'm not entering into worship, and I'm thinking about other things. And I had to get to the place where it's like, I don't really care what you do. I mean, I hope you enter into worship, but I can't control what you do. So I'm just going to do this between me and Jesus right now. Come with me if you'd like. Quite honestly, that's why I close my eyes when I lead worship, because you distract me. And I've gone to seminars and things and worship conferences where they're like, you have to look at the audience and engage them. I'm like, I don't. No way. I'm not doing that because I just need to worship Jesus. And if they, you know, they can come along with me if they want. But what about preaching? You see, if, if you're doing it under people as a pastor, this is something I had to learn early on in, in, in the first church that I pastored in Oregon. I remember I've told this story before, but I had this great midweek study and I was ready to preach to the masses and I open up the door to the sanctuary and there's like eight or ten people there and I'm like where are the multitudes God don't you know that this message is going to change the world and God was like all I heard was those words as unto me so I hope you enjoy the Bible study I really do I, I pray for you guys and I pray and I I love you guys and I want us to grow together but at the end of the day I don't do it for you God made me a Bible teacher so guess what I do it as unto him it's like I'm teaching to Jesus right now, like he needs to be taught by me. He doesn't. But I do it as an act of worship. And see, so you just translate into your realm. I'm just a homemaker. What? First of all, never just say you're just a homemaker because you are the um, foundation of society if you're a homemaker. But you don't have to just wash dishes or clean windows or build houses. You can do that unto the Lord. You can mop floors as unto the Lord. And, oh, whatever, that's just so churchy thing to say. Okay, if you just take it like that, then you're lost. But what if we actually did this stuff? You guys know the story of Brother Lawrence, right? Practicing the presence of God, little book he wrote. He was a monk, and he just washed dishes as unto the Lord, and he would be so full of joy, people would come to watch him wash dishes. So, man, first of all, it's in that private place. But then when we have to be out and we're public and we're just doing our thing and just lifing it up, we can still do what we do as unto the Lord, and now all of a sudden it's worship. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Guys, thanks for enduring kind of a, a long chapter and a long-winded pastor. And let's pray these things in and we'll go our way. I actually hate to end it like this, Lord, because to end on a note that says we should spend time ministering to you, it feels like we should just turn off the lights and worship for like an hour and a half. But we have life and we got things we got to go do and school tomorrow or whatever. And So I just pray that tonight um, some of these things would sink in and, and maybe it's just laying that foundation, Father, that as we read through this, 
we start to have a working knowledge of your word and understand, wow, this all speaks of Jesus and he's the great high priest and he's done this for us and this is how it applies to me. Lord, help us to connect those dots. Most of all, Lord, I pray that we would truly, truly get that ministry as a royal priesthood is as unto you in the quiet place and Lord, even when it's loud and we're out in front of everybody, Lord, we can still do it as unto you. Let these things sink in. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.